Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have this day. and um, Ask, Lord, that you would please bless the reading of your word, and the proclamation of it. Give me the um, spiritual uh, insight and the physical ability to proclaim your word according to your will so that it would impact your people. Ask, Lord, that you would please be with our church, that you would give us a desire to be in unity with one another, and that we would achieve that unity with one another through being united with you. Please forgive us of our failures. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is this uh, small fish native to Hawaii that is called the gold saddle goatfish. It just sounds lovely, right? They're tiny little things, relatively speaking, but they offer an important lesson on the subject of unity. Uh, Several divers have described times where they've gone down and they've seen in the distance this very large gold fish and they want to investigate this thing more this so they go up to this fish that has all these brilliant gold colors only to come close to it and realize that it is not one single mass of fish it is a school of tiny ones huddled together into an almost perfectly fish-shaped pattern by huddling up In a common school for a common purpose, these little fish can hunt for food more effectively and present themselves as a sort of single substantial fish that's not to be trifled with. The the collective whole is more effective than the individual parts. The same creator God who made the golden saddle goatfish has also designed this even more remarkable collective that he has called a church. A church is in which uh, the collective whole is more effective than any of the individual parts. It is believers united together into a single body to bring glory to God in ways that they would not be able to do without one another. This is the same text we looked at last Sunday. Verses 1 through 6 establish the basis of church unity. Last time we noted in verse 1 that we are united by our common calling. As Paul appeals for each of us to walk worthy of the calling with which all of us were called. Verses 2 and 3, we examined how we are united together through our common conduct. There is a call in verses 2 and 3 to humility and gentleness and patient forbearance, uh, all in the unity created by the Holy Spirit in which we are bound 
We are constrained by peace. This morning, I want us to see verses four through six that we're also united in our common confession. This is more than just a confession of faith in Christ, although we're going to see it does in fact include that. Verses four through six serves as a kind of miniature statement on systematic theology. Up to this point in the letter, the Apostle Paul has argued that every disciple of Jesus has been reconciled to God, and because of that, every disciple of Jesus has also been reconciled to one another, so that within an assembly of believers, there is to be no division, there's only to be unity. So, for example, he said in Ephesians 2, there's no more need to have distinctions of Jews and Gentiles, because in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, he is our peace who has made both one, right? He's created unity. And in the next verse, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Jesus has created in himself one new person from two, making peace. Now he comes back around to that language to express in verses 4 through 6 just how one church members are. He gives us a pretty simple outline since he uses that word one seven different times. I'm just going to follow his outline here in seven points. Seven common confessions of the Lord's church. First, in verse four, there is one body. Now, it is not Paul's main intention here to give a comprehensive description about the nature of the Lord's church Certainly, he's not doing that in just four words. There is one body. However, it speaks volumes that the primary metaphor for the church in the Bible is that it is a body. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. Individual church members are seen as separate yet connected parts of this body. This is one of Paul's favorite analogies. A body is a single entity that functions through the work of its many individual parts. Without those parts working, your body doesn't work as it should. Further, without the body, those individual body parts can't work as they're intended, right? You can't cut off your hand and then still have your hand work for you. It won't. Similarly, a church functions as an organic whole based on the working of its individual members. Those members must work in order for the church itself to be working. And those members cannot function by themselves without being connected to the body. There are a lot of folks in Christianity today that come to this statement, there is one body, and try to use that as a proof text for this universal invisible church of all believers. However, it is evident that is not Paul's intent here for several reasons, but we'll just note three. First off, it's perfectly reasonable to think as he writes to the church at Ephesus, right, the body of Christ at Ephesus, that he means there exists in Ephesus one body, a local visible assembly of believers since the very word church ecclesia in greek means 
assembly, we have to have a strong, compelling reason to take it in any kind of a different sense. And there's really no argument that exists here to take it in a different sense. The second reason it's not his intention to teach a universal invisible church is the very nature of the metaphor he's using insists that he does not see the church as a universal invisible entity. How many of y'all would like to have a universal invisible body? How well is your body going to work if your arm is in Europe and your elbow is in Africa and your hands were in Australia, etc.? This is what universal church proponents would have us believe, is that you can have this worldwide body that is connected together that never actually comes together. And this word, church, means assembly, and Paul describes it as a body that's united. That's the third reason it's clear that this is what he means, because when we continue in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is going to be very clear about how he views this metaphor of the church being a body. Listen to verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. A universal, invisible church could not do what Paul says in verse 16, where the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies and it's effectively doing its share. That can only be done through the work of a local, visible assembly of believers coming together, worshiping together, pulling together toward a common goal of glorifying God through Jesus Christ. So, it's not Paul's purpose here to say there's some universal invisible church. But what is his purpose? Why does he say there is one body? I think, frankly, it's exactly what he's been saying throughout this letter. Every believer is reconciled to God and expected to be a part of a body of Christ that shows how in being reconciled to God, they are also reconciled to one another. You think of the two most oddball, peculiar people in this room this morning. I said think about them, not to point, don't start looking. If they have faith in Jesus as their Savior, then they have been united in a way that none of their individual distinctions can ever surpass. They are part of a body of Christ that assembles here in this place. And as members join together in that body, they ought to be pulling together in the same direction, effectively working for the same goal. There is one body, and that body argues we are in unity. Second, in verse 4, he says, and one spirit. This one spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is the active cause of the new birth. Every born-again believer is brought to life through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence in the life of every believer. According to, we'll see later in chapter 5, verse 18, we are to be filled with the Spirit and guided by the Spirit's influence. 
The Holy Spirit is the security of every believer. Paul has already said in chapter one, believers are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is so essential that Paul actually writes to the Romans in chapter eight, verse nine, that if any person does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You must have the Holy Spirit. Each of those is a work of the Spirit on the level of an individual Christian, right? Individually, the Spirit draws, the Spirit instills new life. It indwells us, it secures us, it guides us. But inasmuch as the Holy Spirit does that to each of us individually, the Spirit also does this to the church collectively. After all, the unity Paul is writing about here is called, verse, in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. A church is a body of Christ, and it is united by and animated by the Holy Spirit of God. This is how... Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. He uses the same metaphor. And listen to this. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is essential to church unity. The Holy Spirit indwelling every member in particular is the means by which the Holy Spirit indwells the collective whole of the church. If you think of church unity in the sense of, well, church unity means it's everybody getting along and being able to agree on hard decisions. Let's remember to give credit and glory to the Holy Spirit of God. Have you ever wondered how it is that, that our church has been able to reach relative unity even in the face of some extremely difficult decisions and divisive issues? It is no doubt because the Holy Spirit of God indwells and guides individuals so that the church as a whole is guided by and united in that same spirit. Just as a body without a spirit is dead, a church without the Holy Spirit is dead. We have one spirit. Third, in verse four, he says, there is one hope. Paul writes at the end of verse four, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Let's, let's be clear what hope is intended here. Biblical hope is not simply desire. The way we use this word hope nowadays is, well, I hope it doesn't snow anymore. I hope the preacher doesn't go too long. I hope there's going to be cake with lunch. When we say those things, what we mean is, that's what I want. But it's not necessarily, that's what I expect. Or said another way, this word hope does not mean to wish something the way that we use it. Biblical hope is confident expectation, assurance of what will come to pass. When Paul writes about one hope of your calling, it's actually a reference to something he's already said in this letter. Look back at chapter 1, 
verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Of course, we're breaking into the context because you have to with Paul's letters. He says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Our hope, he says, our confident expectation is in this inheritance we will receive as saints. It is a confident expectation of a future act. It's evident that Paul means this word hope as confident expectation of future blessings that we will experience because of our faith in Jesus and what he's done. The Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John writes about this same hope in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, it's not yet revealed what we shall be, but when we see him, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. Our hopeful inheritance, our confident expectation is not so much about what we will get as it is what we will become. All of us are imperfect, flawed, broken creatures. But we will be made perfect when the perfect Jesus comes in glory. That is your hope in Christ. That is my hope in Christ. But think for a moment in practical terms about this future vision and what it means for church unity. Y'all know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are issues and circumstances in the past that we could look to, to this day, and we could argue about in a way that would cause disunity and division. Even now, at this point in time, there are some issues where we might not find ourselves in agreement about the path forward. Division is amplified by living in the past and looking around at our circumstances. Division is diminished when we cast the eyes of our heart to the future, looking forward to the hope of our calling. You and I have been imperfect in the past, and we are certainly imperfect in the present. But there is coming a day when we will be made perfect. That is the hope of our calling, the Lord Jesus himself is going to come and will be like him. Fourth, in verse five, there is one Lord. Verse five actually says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It wasn't until about the year 1551 that a guy named Robert Estian, sometimes known as Stephanus, broke up scripture into verse divisions. And let me just add, I'm really glad that he did. Although there are times where I wonder what Stephanus was thinking. This one verse, Ephesians 4, verse 5, has been called the golden verse of the ecumenical movement. You know, when various groups of Christians, right, some of them unchurched, others from many diverse denominations, others in some sort of parachurch organization, when they seek to find common ground, this is their go-to verse. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Ironically, this verse outlines three issues which cause a tremendous amount of division in those groups. If we had agreement on the person of the Lord and the nature of faith and the ordinance of baptism, then they would all be Baptists and we wouldn't have division. Actually, knowing Baptists, we probably would still have division. But Paul says there is one Lord. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. The word Lord carries the idea of master or owner. He is ruler. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. You belong to him. You obey his command because he's your master. You cannot serve more than one master. A church cannot have many lords, many individuals recognized as, well, they're the person in authority. A church is united in recognizing and answering to one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the head of the church. And any church that tries to have more heads than that, look, something with more than one head is a monster. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church because he is the savior of all its members. I want you to look at something with me. Leave a bookmark here, but look at Romans chapter 10 for a moment. In Romans chapter 10, Paul makes an argument for salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, he makes an argument for the unity of all those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Listen for both of those. The call to believe in Jesus as Lord and the unity that results in all those who believe in him. Romans 10, starting at verse 9, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is over all, uh, the same Lord over all is rich unto them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you hear this, if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and you believe in the Lord Jesus in your heart, you will be saved. And all those who are saved are united in the Lord Jesus. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. It's all the same Lord over all. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so now he writes to the church at Ephesus in our text and says there's one Lord and having that one Lord Faith in Jesus is the basis for unity. In practical terms, though, this does demand that we have a regenerate church membership, right? Church members who are saved and showing themselves to follow the Lord Jesus, the Master Jesus. We can't be in unity with someone who does not uphold Jesus as Lord. And if we try to, if we say, well, like, oh, you know, Sally or, or Billy, they've accepted Jesus as Savior, but they're just not recognizing him as Lord. That is, they're, they're really saved by his blood, just they aren't going to live for him and obey his word. 
If we do that, then we're trying to have unity with someone who is following another master. And within the church, there is one master. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ the Lord. Fifth, he says in verse five, there is one faith. There's a lot of difference of opinion among commentators about what Paul means here when he says one faith. By the way, isn't it odd how much difference of opinion there is about these things that Paul says causes unity? (laughs) Some very good writers with whom I appreciate say that this means faith in the sense of saving faith, right? All of us have put our faith in Jesus. And it's true, a church must be united by faith in Jesus. However, I tend to see what Paul's saying here. This faith is Paul's way of talking about faith as the body of truth. It would be like when Jude says in in Jude verse 3, to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. He's talking about the, the body of truth. So the difference would be whether Paul means faith as the act of believing or if Paul means faith as in the things that we believe. And I'm confident that Paul means the second for a couple of reasons. First off, just on the logical level, a church has to agree together on the body of doctrine in order to be united. Now, to be sure, there are secondary issues. There are even like third tier issues that we can disagree over. We don't all have to agree about the timing of the rapture, the observance of holidays, or the style of worship music, right? We can make a list of things that it's okay for us to disagree on. In fact, I would encourage you to think of it this way. When those issues come and we disagree agreeably, those issues are actually evidences of our unity as a body of Christ. It is a promotion of church unity. That's not to say that there's not right or wrong in those things, but they are not theological hills that we're called to die on. But for members of the church to be in unity, we must uphold some essential matters of Christian truth, such as, but not limited to, You always know it's going good when you revert to lawyer language, right? Such as, but not limited to. Jesus is the eternal son of God who himself is God. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life and lived sinlessly. He offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin in the place of sinners, paying their sin debt absorbing the wrath of God in their place. He rose from the dead. He rose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and his glorious return is our blessed hope. We have to agree that a sinner is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul's argument for one faith tells us that the church is united by truth, not without truth, right? Some people want to argue for unity and say, well, all of those things don't matter. Paul's argument is, no, 
Those things matter. Those are the cause of unity. This is the first reason I think Paul means by one faith, the body of Christian truth. Or maybe we would say the system of beliefs. Unity cannot exist without agreement on the truth. The second reason I think it's evident that that's what Paul means is the context from Ephesians shows us what Paul means by one faith. Look again at what he's about to say later in chapter 4. Starting in verse 7, he's going to explain that the Lord gives spiritual gifts to church members. Specifically, he's going to talk about teaching gifts, right? In verse 11, there's some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. Those teaching gifts are given in verse 12 for the perfecting or the maturing of the saints and the edifying of the church, the building up of the body of Christ. So follow what he's saying here. There are gifts given to the church, including teaching gifts. Those teaching gifts are aimed at making the saints grow and mature. Well, grow in what? Look at verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Obviously in verse 13, he's using that word faith. He says the faith in the sense of, so we grow up learning through those teaching gifts and maturing in what we believe. So it seems reasonable. He's using it the same way in our text in verse 5. It's given church unity is the same context. All right, y'all, I think all of that might have been confusing. So let me try to sum it up what he means by one faith. He is not saying here that we all have unity because we all have faith in Jesus. Although that would be true, he is saying something more. He's saying we have unity in matters of faith because we all believe the same things, right? The Bible is our rule of faith and practice. The Bible is what we believe and the Bible is all about Jesus. So we believe he's completely God and completely human. He's perfect. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again. He's coming for us. We have one faith. That's our common confession. Sixth, he says, there's one baptism. Again, it's funny how, all, how these let's all get together verses raise so much division. If you believe in a universal church, it would be virtually impossible to say there is one baptism. Because within that universal church, or what I would call churchianity, Okay, there would be, you could be baptized as an adult or as a child or as an infant. You could be baptized because you believe in Jesus and are saved, or you could be baptized in order to become saved. You could be baptized through the authority of a church or just by anybody who feels like doing it. You could be baptized by sprinkling or by pouring or by immersion. You could probably find some group that would put you into a jello mold and call that baptism. Some try to circumvent this by saying that Paul's not talking about water baptism here at all. Right? He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But think for a moment. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was actually baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
right? Back on the day of Pentecost, the church was uh, in a room. That room was filled with the Spirit, and so they were literally immersed in the Spirit, which is exactly what John the Baptist said Jesus would do, right? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That event was a sign that God authorized a church as the place where he's to be worshipped. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, if that happened here at some point, y'all got to tell me about it and point it out to me in the meeting minutes because I would be really interested. It should be obvious that Holy Spirit baptism is no longer available since Paul tells the Ephesians There is only one baptism. And if by one baptism he means Holy Spirit baptism, then the Apostle Paul is now saying, never mind about water baptism, just wipe that right on out because Holy Spirit baptism is the only thing there is. This is not the only place that Paul argues for baptism. Clearly, water baptism as the basis for church unity. The church at Corinth was a mess of disunity. If you remember, some members were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And Paul's response in 1 Corinthians 1.13 was to ask them, is Christ divided? Were, was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? That common baptism that we shared, declaring Christ as Savior, is the basis for unity. And so he writes to the church at Ephesus here. All those members who had believed on the Lord Jesus and put their faith in him, they were baptized the same way for the same reasons. There was one baptism. That's the work that the Lord gave the church to do in the Great Commission when he said to go out and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Biblical baptism requires the right candidate. It requires that it is a person who has repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. An infant cannot do that. It requires the right mode, that is baptism by immersion. That's what the word means. And further, it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As you are put into the water and brought out of the water, that's what baptism pictures. Sprinkling and pouring can't do that. It requires the right administrator, the Lord's church. No individual has authority to baptize except the Lord's church authorizes that person to baptize, and it requires the right purpose. Baptism does not save anyone. It is the answer of a good conscience towards God, Peter says. So by no means am I saying that those, if someone has a baptism that differs from that, that they're not saved. If you repent of your sins and you trust Jesus for salvation, you're saved. But the Apostle Paul says there is one baptism and that's all. We have to insist on that baptism because the Lord's church, Paul says, is united in the common confession around that baptism. And so we have to take it seriously. Seventh, he says there is one baptism. Father. 
in verse 6. The, our, our text is an affirmation of two vital Christian truths. First, it confirms that Christians are monotheistic. That is, there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 in the Old Testament says, The Lord our God is one Lord. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christians are monotheists. We believe there is one God. Our text also affirms Trinitarianism, the belief that that one God is expressed in three persons. He is God in one. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all together. When you look at verses 3 through 4, verses 3 and 4 are very clear about our unity in God the Holy Spirit, right? He says we are to keep the unity of the Spirit. There's one Spirit. Verse 5 is clear about our unity in God the Son. Jesus the Son is Lord, he is the basis of all faith and all things we believe. When we are baptized, it is a picture of faith in Jesus the Son. And now in verse 6, he's going to be clear, we are united in God the Father. There is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He is the Father of all. That is, Paul saying, all of you to whom I am writing. Right? You are united because God is the father of all of you. God, the father, has one perfect son, and yet he willingly gave his only begotten child for us so that he would become the father of a kingdom of adopted children. That makes us united in him. Paul goes on to use this word all Several times, right? He is father of all. Every member of this church is his child. He is above all. That is, he is sovereign in his authority. He does all that he desires. He answers to no one. He he is far above us. He is through all. That is, he is working through those members in Ephesus. He works through the members at Beverly Manor. It's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Anything God does with us is God working through us. And he is in you all, Paul says. He's not distant and uncaring. Now this is interesting because we always think of, well, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And yet Jesus said in John 14, 23, if any man loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come and make our home in him. In fact, this Trinitarian statement by Paul recalls how he started this letter all the way back in chapter one. You can relax, I'm not going to go back and preach Ephesians chapter 1 again. But you can look at it for yourself and remind yourself how Paul described each person of the Godhead, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, and how they worked together 
in salvation. The, the Father, he says, we are, we are chosen, we are elected and predestined by the Father. We were bought and redeemed by the Son. We were brought to life and faith and we're secured by the Holy Spirit. And so now Paul brings that unity into this picture to say the very Father, Son, and Spirit who are united in saving you, that Father, Son, and Spirit are the basis and example for unity of all members of the church. A church brings glory to God by being close in unity like the Father, Son, and Spirit are in perfect unity. He's our father, and so that makes us brothers and sisters. How, how united should that make us? Perhaps you can say with me, as I think all fathers and I assume all mothers can, that the fondest hope that you have for your children is that they would love one another as much as you love them. Similarly, we ought to love one another as siblings in the family of God. We work for him effectively by working with and encouraging one another. We can be united with him by our unity with one another. We can serve him by serving one another. We can love him by loving one another. We are united in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. We should not strive for or settle for anything less than that unity. That is our calling.